0: If you would stand as we honor God's Word this morning, we're going to be starting actually in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Um, I'm going to read the first four verses, and I apologize, you're only going to have verses 3 and 4 on the screen. So if you don't have that in front of you, just please um, let this rest in your hearts. Paul says to the Corinthian church, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as a first importance of what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15 in the first five verses, first four verses. If You may be seated as we go into prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, I just am very thankful that we have the ability and the safety to be able to come worship together, to be joined together with all of our brothers and sisters across this world, to have the ability to put aside all of our fears, our struggles, our frustrations, um, our concerns, and to just rest in your presence this morning in that helps us to prepare our hearts to hear your word and it helps us to step back out into this world knowing full well that you have saved us for a purpose and it wasn't just to get us out of here but it was for something so much more. Your death on the cross, Lord, has defined this world for 2,000 years. Whether people wish to understand that or not, The death of Jesus of Nazareth has defined this entire planet for 2,000 years. Help us to understand how to make sense of all of that and the ins and outs of just why that had to happen that way. Pray, Father, that your word would come alive to us, that we would be able to store it up in our hearts, that we would realize that you love us far more than we could ever love you back. That you desire us to follow you far more than we would ever want to. And that your grace abounds so much more than we could ever understand. And that we deserve so much less than what it is you have poured out upon us. But yet you love us that much. Father, we want to lift up some friends before you this morning. Taj. Kenny. Two men who are struggling right now with um, different issues with their health. I just ask Father that you would bring them peace and you would bring them strength and you would encourage them. You would speak tenderly to their hearts and that you would walk with them, Lord, and you would encourage them. That you would give wisdom to doctors and nurses who are tending to them and their care and. Father, I pray that you would bring the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding in those situations, both for Rose and for Patty and for their families. I just pray that you bring peace and encouragement to them all. Father, we we thank you um, for Cat. We thank you for Andy's dad, and we pray your peace be upon both of them as they are dealing with different health issues as well. We pray for wisdom, most especially for Andy's dad as he goes into surgery very soon, if not already. I pray your hand be guiding his surgeons and the nurses, Lord, and that you would allow them to use the gifts that you have given to them to bring healing to his body. We pray your your peace be upon Andy's mom and upon Andy and Steph and the kids and on his dad. We ask that you watch over them and for Cat as well as she continues to navigate the issues that she has with um, the recurring cancer. Lord, I pray that you would make sense of that and bring peace. And we pray for, for Will, this little boy here who's gone through heart surgery. We pray, Lord, that this fever that has been there for a couple of weeks, that you would um, bring answers for that, and most especially that you would break that fever, whatever is causing that, Lord, that you would bring healing in the name of Jesus right now as we lift him up to you as a, a community of saints before you. We pray that you would bring healing to that boy. And we ask, Father, your blessings upon his entire family. But as we get into your word this morning, Lord, I just ask that you would open up our hearts, that we would not be hard towards hearing your voice this morning, that we would not think that we know that we know that we know, but that we would be prepared to dig into your word and look anew at a story that we we come to every year and we become so familiar with it, I think at times we take it lightly. Help us not to do that. We just lift all of these things up to you, Father, and we give you thanks and praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. For those of you who are taking notes, Will is um, a 10-year-old boy. Dave Wilnevich asked me if we could lift him up in prayer. He had heart surgery a couple of weeks ago, and he's just been battling with this fever. So if, um, if you're taking notes and you're, you, you have your prayer list, Will would be a, a fine young man to put on that, if you would. So... titled this week's message, In Accordance with the Scriptures, Quoting Paul. And we're, we're not going to spend very much time at all in 1 Corinthians 15, but that will be what we are looking towards as we get towards Resurrection Sunday. But what I want us primarily to focus on this morning is what happens. What happens when your entire worldview is turned upside down? And it's challenged by an event that has the exact opposite effect that you expected it to have. See, the cross is just such an event. And when Paul begins to understand that it all happened in accordance with the scriptures, his world would never be the same. When he began to put these pieces together and understand just what that really meant, Paul the apostle would never be the same So I want to take some time this morning to really set some groundwork for us all as we launch into this new series. Again, I've titled it Man of Sorrows, and that comes directly out of Isaiah 53 in verse 3. I need us to have some groundwork set for us if we're going to learn and we're going to discover as we move forward and through the next four weeks all the way up to Easter Sunday. So I want you to be prayerfully patient and would ask that you would just continue to get into the scriptures as we're very intentional and we look at what God's story has for us in that redemptive story through the eyes of those who are seeing it actually unfold as they were living their day-to-day life. We look back with the air of history about it, but they are watching this whole thing unfold every day. And in these verses that we're looking at this morning at Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter, he makes this statement twice in accordance with the scripture, in accordance with the scripture. And we tend to read that and we just think some 2,000 years on, well, of course, it's in accordance with the scripture. Everything in the Bible is in accordance with the scripture. Why would he say that? And to, you know, to a degree, that's true. It's very true. But we actually need to step back, as it were, and then relook at this story and ask ourselves the questions, just what does that really mean to be in accordance with the scripture? Because you see, in light of God's story, which we've been looking at since the beginning of the year, we've been working our way through that, we come upon what is known as Act 3, the covenants. The covenants. Act 1 was creation, Act 2 is the fall, Act 3 is the covenants. A place where God made promises to the people of Israel to do things that would bring about His redemptive plan. Not only for humanity, but for all of creation itself, He would bring healing. If you remember back, we learned in Genesis chapter 3.15 that this obscure promise that was given to the serpent for what it is he did in the midst of that curse regarding the offspring of the woman, that his head would be crushed as he attempted to bite the heel of this mysterious other person. We discovered the Abrahamic covenant during the Faith Bridge series that we just finished when God promised to make an old, childless man the father of many nations. You can read that in Genesis 12 and verses 1 through 4. Through him would come the one. Even though Abram had little to go on, what did he do? He left Haran with his entire family simply because God told him to do so. And he began that faith journey. And In chapter 15 of Genesis, what we find here is that God makes the covenant promise to him. The covenant promised to him that Abraham was worried about all he had was a servant who was going to take all of his inheritance and be his heir. And starting in verse 4 of chapter 15 in Genesis, the Lord says to him to this, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. In faith, Abram believed what God told him. God was going somewhere and his faithful and his obedient people were going there with him. Even though they aren't entirely sure how, and they aren't ultimately really sure of the who is going to bring about all of these promises, they go anyway because they believe that the God who promised these things to them is faithful. See, these texts of Scripture are in part what the followers of Jesus were seeing in a brand new light. Now that Jesus was not in the tomb, he had been resurrected. They're confronted with this, and they're going back to the Scriptures, and they're starting to see all of these things in a brand new way. You see, we have the end of the story. We have the end of the story. And it is impossible, unless we are very intentional in doing so, it is impossible to view it any other way, because we know what happened. In accordance with the Scriptures, for Paul meant that in Jesus of Nazareth is all the fullness of God as well as all of his promises fulfilled. I say that again. In, all, in Jesus of Nazareth, what Paul found is all the fullness of God as well as all of his promises fulfilled. Thus, in accordance with the scripture, means so much more. That's why he says what he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as our guarantee. This is why he defines it that way. And so you're sitting there going, well, no kidding, pastor. I learned this in Sunday school. Why do we have to keep going over this over and over again? I get that. Move on. Well, no. We don't want to move on. We don't want to go that fast through Scripture because we miss so much. You see, because before the Holy Spirit revealed as much to the apostles, all of these things came to a man by the name of Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus was born. He pens his prophecy, and they would be seen differently that 700 years before. You see, because Isaiah and those reading them at the time he was writing them would have no idea at all who this man of sorrows was, and why it was he was going to do what he did. It's important for us to just rest and read these things. And that's going to be our important discovery as we journey over these next few weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And see what is of first importance, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 here. Why that is of first importance and in accordance with the Scripture. Revisiting these things again in a fresh and brand new way for each one of us will remind us It will remind us of what perhaps we already know. But even more importantly, it will reveal to us the things that perhaps we didn't know. Because we've become so used to the story being told. And here we are some 2,000 years on, looking back at it, separated from a people and separated from that time. That was While it was so different from our time in 2017 here in Virgin's, it was actually, if we think about it and look at it, quite the same. People being people. See, the people of God, the people of Israel, because of the covenant promises that God had made with them, were actually waiting for their promised king. They were excited. They were reading the book of Daniel the way some people look at the book of Revelation, and they were ready for their Messiah to show up. God had promised through both Abraham and through David that they would in some way be rescued from their exile and oppression. This was known to them, and they were looking. They were watching the times. They were taking a look at what was going on. They were looking for their king, that one like David, who would come and rescue them from the Romans and their oppressors and all of the evil that was around in the world. That was what their eye was on. Their hearts were ready. You see, but the victory was to be had in a way that they would not expect through a man that they would not understand. This is the problem. This is what we're going to look at and what we're going to learn from. Again, we have the end of the story, so it all makes sense to us, but it really doesn't. How did they feel about this Jesus? And why on earth was it that it appears things were so clear to us and yet they weren't to them and they just weren't getting it? Why? You see, David was promised one who would sit on his throne forever if he obeyed everything that God commanded. That was a covenantal promise that God made with David. Just obey what I tell you and everything will be well. You will always have someone sitting on your throne. And isn't that always the rub? Isn't that always the rub? Every time human beings get involved, what happens? Things go sideways. We do our best, and men and women at their best are at best just men and women. More often than not, we tend to miss the mark, we come up short, and we struggle with that obedience. And that's okay. If we are moving forward in our faith journey, God honors that. But we always struggle with that. We miss the mark. That's why grace abounds in Christ why it's important that we understand that God promises us that he will bring us safely to the finish line if we would just be faithfully obedient to him he'll get it done we just need to step into what he tells us to do that's God's grace his mercy he'll get us to the finish line loving him and then loving others it's really simple it's not that complicated we overcomplicate it because we don't like how simple it actually is love God and love others In the name and in the power of Christ, that's it. It is complicated, but it is not impossible. Why is it not impossible? Because this is why we were created. And it was the reason why it was Jesus came back. We weren't created just to get out of here. We were created with a purpose so that we could fulfill our created purpose. That's why Jesus came. See, that's a journey we're going to begin after Resurrection Sunday as we take a look at the Ten Commandments, so I would encourage you to just stay tuned. But for now, we need to know about this man of sorrows who shows up in accordance with the Scriptures. Because this very same Isaiah the prophet who declared that a child would be born and a son would be given, declaring that the whole world and the governments of this world would rest upon his shoulders, we learned that at Christmas, did we not? Is now the very same prophet who's talking about this mysterious man of sorrows, And we think he might be the same, but we're not really sure. Because never did anyone think that it was possible that this could be one and the same person. So dynamically different. And in reading the text, that that really messed them up. In fact, there was such a marked difference in his writings that some think that there were actually two Isaiahs. For the record, I don't. But you can see a distinct line from chapters 1 to 39 and then from 40 to 55. It almost looks like two different people. But there weren't. Isaiah was just getting two very clear and distinct pictures from the Lord about what was going on. So in coming to Isaiah 52, we see him once again telling the people that their long-awaited Messiah and Deliverer would arrive, and here's what it would look like. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. And what we read this morning in our first reading, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's a cool text of scripture. You had a lot of victory going on there. And some of it should sound familiar because that is what Paul quoted in his letter to the Roman church in chapter 10 in our first reading. It's a picture of victory. It's a picture of triumph and God working on behalf of his people. That's what's going on. And it is, in fact, a beautiful picture. And those in Jesus' day were absolutely ready for that to happen. They were ready and they were waiting because all signs of the times pointed to the coming of the Lord to his people. It wasn't an accident that they were looking for the Messiah when Jesus showed up. The time, it seems, was finally at hand for them. And they were right, of course. The problem was was they just didn't understand the whole picture. And to put ourselves in their position for a minute and then try to take a look at the story from inside. They didn't understand the whole picture. Because, you see, something goes horribly wrong, it seems, in Isaiah as he continues to write in this. All of a sudden, the servant who has delivered them the victory is himself not looking so victorious. Seems to take a pretty rough turn here in this chapter. All of a sudden, the joy is gone, and Isaiah, as he writes what God tells him to, becomes a bit confused, it seems. It seems. He says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Think about that for a minute. Not realizing that that high and lifted up and being exalted was a cross and not a throne. Nothing hidden there now that we look back, but to them it was different. It continues, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of any children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. What's going on? I can only imagine what that sounded like when Isaiah came home from the office and he sits down at the dinner table and his wife asks him exactly how his day went. Did all the writing go well, dear? You know, as you sat in your office, did the Lord speak to you and you get all this stuff scribbled down? Oh, yes, yes, it went well. It went very well, until it didn't. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, things got really weird because I was writing about this badly beaten servant of Yahweh and it was making no sense to me and I've got no idea who he was because it started off as some sort of victorious thing. But the vision was awful to me. The vision was unsettling as I saw this and I'm writing it down on parchment. It unsettled my heart. But something about him, though, as I looked at this vision, something about him, I just don't know, but in the ugliness of it all, I was drawn to him. You can imagine, you know, I'm just speculating between the lines, but I can imagine what that must have been for Isaiah. You see, because the shift here tends to give the impression that Isaiah had to be talking about two different people. And that's what most people thought in that day, as well as in the days of Jesus when they came to this text. Even if... Perhaps Isaiah wasn't so sure that he was talking about two different people. Because it just seems that way. One commentator speaking on this passage says this. There's a plaintive and even sorrowful note to this poem. As G.A. Smith has indicated, the style is broken, sobering, and recurrent. The light in the poem is very bright, and the shadows are exceedingly dark. We may safely brush aside the suggestion that someone other than the prophet wrote this chapter. To catch the full flavor of this song, we must not overlook the fact that nowhere in the course of it does the servant himself speak, nor does he appear. He is the object of discussion. He haunts the poem. Think if you were to read that for the very first time. You see, this was the conflict with Jesus of Nazareth. This was the very conflict. He was both king and suffering servant. That did not make sense. The man of sorrows was the Messiah. That did not make sense to the people of Israel. This was the conflict. In fact, it still doesn't make sense to people. In all of our wisdom, in all of our intelligence, in all of our philosophies, in all of the things that are worldly geniuses that we have, we don't even know who or what we are. You constantly hear over and over and over again, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? All the while arguing amongst ourselves what a human being actually is. It's ridiculous. Today it's defined one way, tomorrow it's defined another. And yet, what does it mean to be human? No different today than then. Therefore, the answers today are the same as they were then. Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians when he writes this, starting in the 20th verse of chapter 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just when we think we have it figured out, we don't have it figured out. And yet we do. Trusting in Christ opens that door. The Holy Spirit opens that door. We simply need to ask Him. Today, if the Lord softens your heart, do not harden it. Hear His voice. The question is, and was in fact, for Paul himself before his Damascus Road encounter how can the King and the Messiah be cursed? This was the misunderstanding even Paul, probably the brightest guy you could come across in that day. He didn't get the purpose of the cross until he had an encounter with Jesus. How can the King and Messiah be cursed? How does this suffering servant sit at the right hand of God in heaven? See, even he didn't understand what Isaiah was saying until he had an encounter with Jesus. Until Jesus looked at him and changed his heart, opened his eyes, and then all of a sudden in accordance with the scripture. The cross was never to be part of the victory parade for God's people. They would have never in a moment thought that that was the way out. Not for a moment. It was impossible to reconcile this truth that God was putting before them with their idea of Messiah and King. And it is still impossible for us to do that. Jesus was the only person who could ever fulfill all of the promises of God. He was there delivering them from their exile. And as a result, delivering us from our exile some 2,000 years later. It would finally be over. It would finally be over and things would be made completely right the way that they're supposed to be made. But they seem to want none of it. They don't want anything. They're seeing it play itself out right in front of them and they don't want it. Why? Because the exile to them, they were thinking, was the deliverance from worldly powers. So that God would put them back to their rightful place as the head of the nations. And they could then rule and have dominion over people. Oh, Jesus came to deliver them from their exile, all right. But he came to deliver them from the exile of sin and separation from God. You see, in the midst of Jesus showing up and walking to the cross, the curse of the garden that we learned in Genesis chapter 3 was finally over. We're not bound to that anymore. That's what was happening. None of it makes sense in light of what they understood Isaiah was saying to them. None of it. There's no way that these two men could be one and the same, but God never operates in the way in which we would operate now, does he? Nor does he do so in accordance with my understanding. Thus, Paul's statement, and looking at what Isaiah has written, it all makes perfect sense that in accordance with the scriptures, This Jesus shows up on the scene and is the living embodiment of the one true God to deliver his people from their exile and heal all of creation. We are not here simply to get saved and get out of here. As we look toward the suffering of Jesus through Isaiah the prophet, we're going to work through why so many people didn't get Jesus. Because the simple and the very true answer is that they refuse to repent and believe. Same day, same stuff. We look at Jesus and we say we don't want that as the answer because we refuse to repent and believe. That's the simple and true answer. Now, the deeper answer is just as important. In fact, I would challenge you it's even more important. Idolatry. Idolatry and the glorification of self and our desires to have a life our own way is always at the core of the rejection of God. When you look at the Adam and Eve story, when you look at any coming up short, it's idolatry. The root of sin was idolatry. I want it my way. Did God really say, no, no, I want it my way. Idolatry, that's the deeper issue It still today makes no sense in a world of self-glorification Self-deification That the one who came to save had to suffer and die a horrible death Nobody wants that story Now if we look at it simply that way Skipping a rock across a pond in a very simple way And then we share it that way In other words, with Mr. Mark That made God angry So he took his anger out on his son by crucifying him on the cross So that he would no longer be mad at us And then we could be saved from this world. Now looking at it that way, it's no wonder people don't want to hear it. I wouldn't want to hear it. Now while that's part of what happened, that certainly isn't the deal. Jesus saved us from our sins. We sung that in just about every song this morning, yes? (laughs) Doesn't get any better than that, but that is not all. That is not the only reason why he did what he did. He saved us for something. And it wasn't just to get to heaven. It wasn't just to go to heaven. Jesus died to deal with sin itself. And we've talked about this this year. So here we are again, like a one string banjo. That's the way it works because this is what's going on. Jesus died to deal with sin itself once and for all in order that we may fulfill our created purpose. He crushed the head of the enemy on the cross when the enemy thought that he had him by the heel. Didn't work, did it? It didn't work at all. You see, the man of sorrows was God's promised sacrifice, not only to forgive us our sins, but to set us free to live a life that we were created for. Adam and Eve were created to be God's active agents in the world that God created living in communion with God and community with one another in a way that brought glory to God and reflected out into the world God's glory. That is what we are created for because we bear his image. So in the forgiving us of our sins, which is what we need first off, we can then be free to live the way we were supposed to all along. That's what the Bible's story tells us. It's not just so I can save, get saved, and get laughing at people so they get their comeuppance. That's not the way it works. If I could have the worship team, because I'm out of time, it happens every week. <laughs> I love to read the scriptures. I love to teach the scriptures. It's probably obvious. <laughs> When you look at these things, it just, it excites me to know that I can get in my car on a Sunday morning and come down here and go pear-shaped five miles down the road and just really blow it. You know, another kind word from your pastor as we drive on Interstate 89, to know that the grace of God extends over each and every one of us. Why? Because he knows that we need this. But that each one of us was saved for a purpose and for a reason. I want to close with a quote from N.T. Wright in his new book, The Day the Revolution Began. Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion is the name of the book. And he says this. In the story the Bible is telling, humans were created for a purpose. And Israel was called for a purpose. And that purpose was not simply to keep the rules. Although that's part of it. Not simply to be with God. Although that's part of it. And certainly not simply to go to heaven Although that's part of it As you may suppose from all of our innumerable books Sermons, hymns, and prayers Humans were made to be image bearers To reflect the praises of creation Back to the creator And to reflect the creator's wise and loving stewardship in the world You see, Israel was called to be the royal priesthood To worship God And reflect his rescuing wisdom Into the world That's why Jesus was the perfect Israelite. He was the fullness of God. That's what Paul said. And if we have seen him, Jesus told his disciples, we have seen who? The Father. Why? Because Jesus was the perfect human being because he was the divine son of God. He reflected out into the world the creator's image in everything that he did. And he reflected back to God the beauty of creation as they worked together. Jesus came as the suffering servant to free us from the bonds of sin. All in order that we would be free to live out in the vocations that God has gifted you in. To the glory of his name. Not just to get out of here. Every aspect of your life is to bring glory to God. And if you are in Christ, what that then means is that you are free to be able to do that. To the glory of his name. Because you bear his image. You have the ability to be truly human. That's why he didn't take us with him when he ascended. Some people ask the question, why didn't he just take us up to heaven and get it over with so the world could just go to pot? That's not the plan. He left us here because each and every one of you are gifted in a particular way. To have an effect on this world. I say it every week. You need to get that into your heart. You are God's people for God's world. You are not an accident. You are gifted by God to be uniquely you. Isaiah 52, 15, I read it one last time. Because in light of all that, it begins to open up for us and it makes more sense. Now listen, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Little did they know and little do we know that he would do so. And continues to do so through his redeemed people. That's you. And that's me. That's why Jesus looks at us and he says to us, go. Go into the world. Don't hold yourself up here in church and hope you don't get contaminated. Go into the world. Speak the truth. Live the light of Christ in the world. So that when people look at you, they go, well, you know what? They're a little weird. But there's something about them. Something about them. Something about her that attracts me to them. That's what we are saved for. That's what we are saved for. Saved from sin and death. Saved for being the light in this world. Stand, please.